Hello, and welcome to the Ohio Valley True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Before we get into Henryville Part 2, I want to let you know that the Monday after each episode, we will be on twitch.tv slash OV True Crime to discuss the case and answer any questions you might have. And we can talk about any other true crime stuff that might be on your mind. So to follow me on Twitch, simply go to twitch.tv slash OV True Crime and hit the follow button with the heart on it. I'll post reminders on social media so that you don't miss out. I hope to see you there. And as always, you can follow me on social media on Twitter and Instagram at OV True Crime. And now let's begin Henryville Part 2, The Library. A reminder, this series is different from my other episodes because with this case, I'm updating you as I research so that you can discover things when I do and go on the journey with me. So it's not an open and closed sort of case like the other ones that I will usually be covering. So welcome to the second installment of my Henryville murder series. Last time I introduced you to what little is known about the case some of the rumors and speculation, where it happened, and the victims. Who exactly Richard Sweeney, Jeffrey Burkett, and Donald Abel were and how they died has remained a big mystery. But with one trip to the local library, I finally got some answers. Not many, but enough to make me hopeful and a little more determined. So here's how the trip went. Most of the Clark County, Indiana libraries around Henryville aren't really big enough to hold a lot of the historical documents, so the microfilm, old newspapers, and other records I was looking for were being kept at the Charlestown Public Library, which is in Charlestown, Indiana. When I arrived, I went to the local history and records nook and, with the help of a very kind librarian, started going through the microfilm first. Now, if you've never worked with microfilm, it can be interesting. Depending on the machine and the film, you can have issues. So luckily, out of all of the rolls I wanted to look through, only one failed to load into the machine. There were four local newspapers with microfilm from the time period I was looking for. Since I didn't know exactly when each boy had died, I decided to search from 1970 to 1980, just to make sure I wouldn't miss anything. I searched for hours through eight rolls, a half decade each, for a total of 40 years worth of newspapers. And I didn't find anything. Not one mention of the boys, there were blurbs about family members coming to visit from out of town, births, other deaths, church meetings, graduations, most of your run-of-the-mill really small-town news, but absolutely no mention of any murders. I kind of started to doubt things. Were these crimes completely misrepresented online, or were these small-town newspapers just choosing not to cover something very horrible and traumatic? While I understand that most small communities don't really want to have like this horrible, awful, depressing stuff on their front pages, you would also think that a murder would be at least front page once um, during the period, but there was nothing. However, I was not done. After the microfilm, I started digging through the drawers of old newspapers that they have. So they're in no particular order and they're just kind of tossed on top of each other in this big filing cabinet that's probably a little under five feet tall. And the newspapers dated from around the 1950s to the early 2000s. It was pretty interesting for what it was, 
I found original newspapers covering the moon landing, the JFK assassination, local sports wins, everything except what I was looking for. I then moved on to the photo albums because, and I don't know if this is just a thing here, but the library has um, photo albums where I'm assuming patrons of the library can come in and submit their own pictures. Um, there were pictures of local families, local places, cemeteries, but again, I did not find anything pertaining to any of the boys. So then I moved on to the record books, births, deaths, deeds, marriages, and still nothing. It was almost like these boys and their families never existed. So I had one place left to look and it was sort of my Hail Mary um, in the middle of the local records room, there are several filing cabinets that are for family records. So from what I understand, you get a manila folder, you write your surname on the tab, and you put whatever information you'd like into the folders so that people researching genealogy or anything like that can go through the folders and get the information you provide. It's actually really cool. And I remember back when my grandmother was like really into researching genealogy, we spent a lot of time combing through files like that. So knowing this was going to be my last chance, I dove in and I started on the side closest to me, which was the last half of the alphabet. So I started in the drawer marked S. Um, I flipped through the folder hoping for Sweeney and I found one, but there was no information about eight-year-old Richard Sweeney. So I moved to the other side and starting with A's, I looked for Abel, but there was nothing. So the B drawer was next and my last hope. When I opened it, I almost immediately found a folder with Burkett on the tab. To put it dramatically, I was definitely holding my breath as I took the folder out. And as soon as I opened the folder, I was immediately greeted with multiple old newspaper clippings. My heart kind of stopped for a second because the first one that I read said, Family and community struggle to cope with murder a 15-year-old boy. And there was a picture of a teenage boy with the name Jeff Burkett printed beside it. So after years of wandering and hours of thinking it was useless, I'd finally found some proof. Physical proof that at least one of the boys existed. And I finally had a face to put to one of the names. The news clippings weren't in order, and some of them didn't even have dates, so I've tried to piece the information together as best as I can. So here is what we now know about Jeffrey Burkett and what happened to him according to the local newspaper. At 7 a.m. on June 9, 1977, Jeffrey's mother, Ida, took him to Henryville High School for driving lessons. Afterwards, he was supposed to call her to come pick him up, but the call never came. His family reported him missing at 10 p.m. that night, but the missing persons report wasn't fully filed until the next morning. The reason that the family delayed reporting him missing until 10 o'clock was because Jeffrey's mother assumed that he had stayed in town to hang out with friends. This sounds kind of crazy today in our like super technological world where we can just check up on our kids with a text message, but remember this was 1977. Not only was the technology not there, but underage people had a lot more autonomy, so it wasn't unusual for them to wander off for hours at a time and the parents not to worry but Jeffrey was not hanging out with his friends. 
Police found witnesses who said that after the driving lesson that morning, Jeffrey got into a pickup truck with an unidentified person. And as far as we know, that is the last person to have seen Jeffrey alive. On the next day, Friday, June 10th, at 3.30 in the afternoon, bikers found Jeffrey's body in the Henryville Forestry, or the Clark State Forest. To give you some perspective, the distance between the high school and the entrance to the forestry is less than a mile. However, where his body was located was about five miles into the forestry, near a fire lane in State Road 160 at a place called Flat Rock. Even though I've been to the forestry more times than I can count, I've never heard of this specific area there. So I'm going to ask around and see if my mom or any of her friends kind of know the location. The coroner reported that Jeffrey had died between midnight and 5 a.m. on Friday. What this tells us is that between the time Jeffrey's mom dropped him off and his estimated death, there are 18 to 22 hours missing from the timeline. So where was Jeffrey and what happened to him during those hours? Here's what the papers reported about how Jeffrey died. His body was found face down in the forestry. He had been beaten on the head and body. His hands were tied, one paper reporting that they were behind his back, but the rest said that they were above his head with a wire. They also reported that there were holes in his fingers. Now, they didn't specify the size or type of holes, so I'm not really 100% sure what that means. One paper also wrote that it appeared Jeffrey's body had been dragged for some distance. The actual cause of death, however, was strangulation. The newspapers said that rumors immediately started to spread that his death was drug-related, although his mother and friends denied this at the time. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, Henryville does not have a police department, and at the time, their cases were handled by the Indiana State Police. So when police began to investigate, they originally had two men from their Charlestown post on the case full-time. Those officers were Sergeant Guy Schroeder and Sergeant Dave Kinder. There's also a Sergeant Louis Gayer quoted in some articles. Now, Charlestown, Indiana, by the way, is 8.5 miles or 13 minutes away from Henryville. There was a reward fund established to try to encourage anyone with information to come forward. The last newspaper article that I saw said that it had gone up to $4,300, but I'm assuming that remained untouched, and I'm not really sure what's happened to it since. Another undated news clipping had the title, Slaying Coverage Criticized. It shows that the coroner working the case was very unhappy with the coverage. Coroner F. Daniel Kelly said that the coverage was sensational and was causing an unwarranted amount of concern in the community. He claimed that he didn't want to seem uncooperative, but the way the papers were reporting on the death made him decide to limit information he was willing to share. In another clipping, he's quoted as saying, There is nothing more that can be said right now. I don't know why people keep stirring this thing up. And while that can seem kind of harsh, that could also be a clue as to why the case isn't really widely known in the area. If his opinion that this shouldn't be stirred up and made a big deal of was shared by most of the community, it could be a sort of silent agreement to just let it go and not bring it up. I found another newspaper clipping that revolved around the police trying to clear up rumors about the case. 
They wanted to clarify that no, they hadn't made any arrest, that residents were accusing their friends and neighbors of being the murderer. They warned residents not to get involved in the case. This clip briefly mentioned that this was the second death in the last few years, but didn't say who the other death was, so I assumed it was referring to eight-year-old Richard Sweeney. The final newspaper article is titled, Police Center Murder Probe on High School. It starts with, The Investigation into the Murder of Two Henryville Students. Two Students. Donald Abel, his name right there in print. The last known victim. So right there, we know that this is the newest of the clippings because from what we know, Donald Abel was killed last. Here's what the newspaper tells us about Donald. Donald Abel was 19, and he, like Jeffrey, went to school in Henryville. But unlike Jeffrey, Donald lived in Borden, Indiana. Borden is about 16 miles or 23 minutes away from Henryville. It's not uncommon for kids from Borden to attend the school in Henryville, just like it's not uncommon for some kids from Sellersburg to attend the school in Henryville or vice versa. According to the paper, Donald went missing on September 27th. His body was found in the Memphis-Henryville area near the Clark State Forest. He was the second death in five months. The paper says that, like Jeffrey, Donald had skull fractures. So even though Jeffrey had technically died of strangulation, both boys had been beaten on the head. At the time, police said that they did not see a link between the deaths other than the fact that both had attended Henryville High School. Finally, six paragraphs into this last news clip, there was the first tangible mention of our very first victim and the youngest, Richard Sweeney. What we now know about Richard Sweeney is that he was found three years previously, on April 28th of 1974. Eight-year-old Sweeney's body had been found in the loft of the Blue Lick Sail Barn, a little west of Memphis, Indiana, which is four miles or about six minutes from Henryville. He had been strangled and his body hidden under a pile of rags. So we now have a timeline and an area for the boys' murders. In chronological order, Richard Sweeney was killed on April 28, 1974. Jeffrey Burkett died on late June 9th or early June 10th of 1977, and Donald Abel died on September 27th, 1977. So mapping out the area where the bodies were found, it gives us an area of about 10-ish miles, which for three murders in three years in a very small town seems pretty significant. So some big questions are still unanswered. Are they connected? It's still way too early to guess. We don't have enough evidence to suggest that they were. So while Jeffrey and Donald were close in age and seemed to have been attacked in a similar manner, Richard was a lot younger. He was only eight years old. And instead of his body being left in or near the forestry, it was left in a sail barn. But we are not done yet. We have just barely scratched the surface of figuring out what happened and piecing all of this together. There is still a lot of digging to do and a lot more of blank spaces to fill in. What I want to find is more articles relating directly to Richard and Donald. I want to find out a lot more about the days that they went missing, the days they were found, and what happened after. I also want to know if there were ever any suspects in any of these cases. If you'd like to read the articles for yourself and to finally see Jeffrey and put a face to his name, 
I'll be posting the news clippings on my website, ovtruecrime.com. And if you follow me on Instagram and Twitter at ovtruecrime, you can see them there too. Although if you want to be able to read them in full resolution, I definitely suggest going to the website. I'll be honest, as elated as I was to find all of this new information, it is very, very sad. I had almost hoped that maybe these cases were so misrepresented that they were almost a figment of people's imaginations, but finally seeing the details in print really drives home just how horrible these boys' lives ended. And it is really frustrating that no one was ever held accountable. These boys are real. They had family and friends that loved them. They were young, vulnerable, and someone or multiple people took their lives. And again, while I don't think that this will solve these cases because they're just, they're so old and I really don't think there's going to be any DNA evidence or like breaking new technology that will be able to find the murderers. I do hope that one day whoever's responsible or someone they confess to will finally go to the police so that there can be closure and justice. But even if that doesn't happen, at least the boys will not be forgotten. Thank you for listening to this installment of the Henryville Murders. The next episode for this series will be released in August. I am going to try to stick with an every three month sort of update on this case as we go. That gives me enough time to compile some more information and get everything kind of written down and sorted out for you guys. And then all of the episodes in between will be my normal sort of coverage of the missing, unsolved, and murdered. And I'll remind everyone again that Monday I will be on twitch.tv slash ovtruecrime doing a live stream so that we can talk and chat about this case or any other case or just whatever true crime stuff happens to have been on your mind or caught your attention. And now here are some promos for some other awesome podcasts. Thanks. the dark fringes of our world, the pieces forgotten, the dark remnants. Dark Remnants is a podcast that features horror stories. These stories may be scary, brutal, odd, creepy, or just plain weird. If you're a fan of horror, dark sci-fi, Lovecraft, or creepy pasta, then join me every other Saturday for a new tale to tell. You can find Dark Remnants wherever you get your podcast or visit darkremnants.com. Come and join us in the dark. Hey, this is Steve from Great Lakes True Crime. We tell stories from Ohio and the rest of the Great Lakes region, including the Canadian side. So give a listen on your podcast app and follow us on Facebook. Just search for Great Lakes True Crime. The world is a lot. It really is. That's why we started our podcast, Six Sad World. I am Jasmine, and this is my co-host, Mari. And we host a bi-weekly podcast on all things macabre. 
We cover anything from serial killers to cults to alien conspiracies to ghost stories and so much more. We are childhood friends and we're both passionate about social justice. We'll discuss how these things intersect with racism, sexism, ableism, and queermizia. We both have unique perspectives coming from marginalized identities. Me as a black cis woman and Mari as a disabled trans person. We offer the kinds of conversations we felt were missing in true crime and horror. And we're hoping you'll join the conversation too. So check out Six Sad World. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you can find your podcasts.